Hello and welcome to the Found Cause. We found our cause in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael Man behind the machine, and to my right, your left is Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And across the airwaves, sitting right between us, magically via the technology miracle, is Theodore under the PC, the person of Christ. This is a special episode, ladies and gentlemen. Not only because it's a reaction video that I didn't start by staring into the camera like a freak, but also because we have the reaction <laughs> right here in front of us, and Theodore's here. I think this is the first reaction video. Not a response video, but a reaction video where we are all present, and it took some real finagling on my side to get this to actually work. So hopefully everything stays together with this bubblegum and glue, and we can do this. But today's episode is reacting to a relatively up-and-coming, famous atheist YouTuber named Cosmic Skeptic. But he's talking about not just an atheist problem, but kind of a bigger philosophical problem. And that is Christianity's biggest problem, so he says, the problem of evil. It's a classic problem that, that theologians have talked about for generations now, since Aquinas and even Augustine. So we're going to see how we react to it and how Cosmic Skeptic puts his new spin on it. And uh, we'll go from there. It's a long video, so I'm not going to give any more preamble. Let's go. But anyway, let's get on with today's video. Now, I know that it's quite a bold claim that I've made in the title to have put my finger on the single biggest problem that Christianity as a religion faces. But let me explain. I want to put forward in this video what I think is the hardest objection to respond to if you're a Christian. Now, as you'll probably already know, the most famous problem that you have if you want to say that the Christian God, that is, an all-loving, all-powerful God, exists, is the positively colossal amount of suffering infused into the human experience. Suffering is so omnipresent that most of our time spent existing is time spent trying to avoid it. Eating to avoid starvation, working to avoid poverty, sleeping to avoid fatigue, watching YouTube videos to avoid whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing right now. And that's when things are going well in life. God also throws into the bargain of living existence, which nobody agrees to enter into, by the way, unpredictable diseases, miscarriages, natural disasters, and the existence of TikTok. Why would an all-powerful God, who truly loves us, permit such suffering to overwhelm our living existence? And this problem for religion is called, as you'll likely know, the problem of evil. But there's so that's the basic premise, so in case you didn't hear it, some right here is that if God is truly all-powerful and all-good, that the existence of evil things in the earth are a contradiction because we as humans would suggest that if God is able to fix something that is objectively bad, like a miscarriage or a flood or a murder or a rape or whatever the evil thing is, that he would. And that ultimately good things are things that make us feel good in the moment. And so if anything is not making us feel good in the moment, it is bad and should be limited by an all-powerful God. You might see where I'm angling this one because I do not think that God is obligated to fix evil things though he is perfectly good because his standard for good is much higher than ours and he knows exactly what he's doing on the earth even with bad things but any further comments yes two things I would say that you are assuming that God is not gonna do anything about it I would say to me as something that just stands out we hold as Christians that he will in the end yes right? in his timeline not our timeline and also that you're, people, people like him would also be assuming that what makes us feel at peace and good is what is good. Yeah. And not something else. So his standard for what's good and evil essentially is, is based <laughs> on his own intuition, which is not an objective standard. Exactly. But those are, there's some basic rebuttals, but let's hear what he has to say. There's something missing from this picture. I'm not just here to restate the problem of evil as if it's anything new. There's something else. There exists such an obvious and overwhelming version of the problem of evil that it bemuses me that so many philosophers leave it entirely out of the discussion, or at best relegate it to a passing paragraph or a footnote or something. I'm excited. I'm talking, of course, about the problem of animal suffering. 
Now, before you think I'm just getting all vegan on you again, don't worry, that's not what this is. I know how sensitive some of you are to me pointing out that our own treatment of animals is so poor that it almost reaches bod-like proportions. Just when I comment that, I mean, Sebastian, we're talking before the episode started that atheists typically take on another god if they don't, if they reject the living god. And even if they reject regular old gods, they usually take on some social cause god because ultimately it is a nihilistic, meaningless existence to be an atheist because if we are but here for a short time, there's no eternity, you might as well off yourself immediately as soon as you come to that realization because if there's any suffering in life at all, you should get out of life and minimize that suffering because there's no point to have stayed on earth any longer than you have to. So inevitably, because atheists are humans made in the image of God, they do desire to live. And so they come up with a justification for that living. And usually it's some sort of social cause. Now, is it a godly social cause? Rarely. Sometimes I've seen some atheists that push for like godly law and things, even though they aren't Christians themselves, like um, Milo Yiannopoulos, whatever he says right now, I don't think he's a real Christian. And he pushes for like more godly law. In any case, um, cosmic skeptic, as you can smell, is more on the liberal side and especially on the vegan side. We'll keep going. But that's not what I'm here to talk about today. Right? Animals suffering in factory farms, for instance, can easily be explained away by the Christian as a result of human free will. I'm talking about something else. Right? I'm talking about the suffering of animals that isn't human created. The suffering that exists in the wild as a result of natural processes. And by the way, the reason this video is called Christianity's Biggest Problem, specifically, rather than just religion's biggest problem, is because I actually think that some other religions, like Islam, have bigger problems than animal suffering. But animal suffering is still a problem for other religions like Islam, so although in this video I'm going to respond to William Lane Craig, a Christian, on the subject, do bear in mind that these arguments should apply to any god who claims to be morally perfect. So just before we continue, William Lane Craig, not a favorite of mine, um, he tends to do a lot of philosophical proofs, quote unquote, to defend Christianity that I don't agree with. And if you're familiar with our podcast, um, I'm not, I would not defend the goodness of God via the badness of man. I would never say that um, it's human free will that has overcome God's ability to correct things on earth. So my defense for the problem of evil, if you heard me and Sebastian talking about it, was not that humankind has free will and that's why there's bad things on earth. Yes, humans choose to do evil things in the earth, but ultimately it's all at behest of God. God's the one that created the earth. He saw what people were going to do and he's allowed it to happen. So I would say the buck stops at God, um, even though he's not the the one doing the evil, and I would never say that, he would be the one that foresaw the evil. So all evil that happens in the earth, I would say, is actually ultimately good. So it, it itself is evil. So the rape itself, the murder itself, the animal suffering itself is evil. But we can trust and should trust that God's way is perfect and that ultimately even animal suffering is for good. So even this quote-unquote meaningless animal suffering, which Cosmic Skeptic, maybe I, maybe Sebastian, maybe you, Theodore, can't point out its exact reasoning, I believe it will have a reason in the end and that only God can tell us what that reasoning is. So I would say that we don't know what good is and that's why it looks like a problem to us that evil things are happening, but ultimately is good. Some would say that... <laughs> there's human free will and that God is allowing humanity to be a certain experiment. Um, and William Lane Craig would be on that list of people who said that God wants men to be free and that he only wants um, men who have freely chosen to be his and to love him to love him. And so he has to allow for men to make their own decisions. And so in a scenario where men are making their own decisions, God has chosen the best possible scenario to save the most men. Um, so I think that's where cosmic skeptics are going to attack. Any thoughts on that, Theodore or Sebastian, before we continue? Any thought, any defense of William Lane Craig? You don't need to do that. All right, we'll let him go. 
This is the basis of my claim. If the problem of suffering is historically one of Christianity's biggest problems, then the problem of animal suffering is its biggest. So I should probably begin by unpacking why animal suffering is such a problem worth addressing in the first place. If human life is, as I've argued, infused with pain, then non-human animal life is defined by pain. Animals in the wild are subject to endless torment from all angles of their existence. They suffer from predation by other animals. Wild dogs disembowel their prey. Venomous snakes cause slow internal bleeding and paralysis. Crocodiles drown large animals in their jaws. And animals also suffer from... <laughs> Anybody else like how he has sources in the description below? Like if you didn't believe that, that snakes were venomous and <laughs> animals <laughs> ate each other and stuff. Just like that's funny. I'm glad he's sourcing. From rampant disease Does to dehydration. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Does he include us as animals then? No, I think he's putting us, right? we're, we're defined as humans. I mean, I'm sure he'd call us animals, but he's talking about non-human animals, mm -hmm. the non Because we, we eat humans also, and hu I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we eat animals, yes. and animals eat humans. That's what I was saying. And I suppose there are cannibals too, so there's that. Yeah, and I think... Because it's animalistic kind of anyway, and then from the atheist perspective, then we're all kind of animals. Yeah, just I, I would advanced. assume he agrees with that. I think he's just saying that um, if we're defending the problem of evil from a sin basis, that sin only came from men, and therefore it should only be men that suffer, and that if um, we're sinful, and so we're like factory farming, like he said, that that's somehow like he's ready for to hear the Christian defense of that because of sin. But animals that aren't doing anything to humankind, so say like way out in the wild, like he said, some like snake that bit uh, mongoose someplace, and right, and that's... They're just fighting each other, right? It has nothing to do with men. Um, that they're suffering. And that why would God have them suffering when it has nothing to do with the sin of men? Now, he should also have heard pretty regularly, if he's used to the regular Christian defense against the problem of evil, that because mankind is the head of creation, he was created to order creation, mm -hmm. that creation without men, without men stewarding it, is disordered. And that disordered creation, of course, has suffering and death because that's not the way it was meant to be. Man was meant to order creation and to rule over creation and subdue creation so when man is not so in the wilds of afghanistan or the himalayan mountains or the jungles of indonesia those places because they're not being governed by men are inherently chaotic and chaos is suffering so that would be my defense of why animals suffer here too yes i'm also seeing here i mean i thought it was pretty cool often gets overlooked in genesis 9 once noah steps off the ark and everything all of that it says, the fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and, and every creature that moves along the ground and all the fish in the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So I would say this is a consequence as a result, follow through of the... Yep, not uh, only the original fall, but of the Noetic covenant as well. Yeah. I agree. Okay, let him keep going. And starvation. They have to contend with forest fires and floods and a whole manner of other terrifying natural disasters. David Attenborough, the celebrated nature documentary filmmaker, once said about his documentaries, people who accuse us of putting in too much violence should see what we leave on the cutting room floor. Nature just really isn't a pretty place. And not only do wild animals suffer in these extravagant ways that humans generally do not, like having to live with the very real possibility of being mauled to death at practically any moment. It's also true that compared to humans, an astronomically higher number of wild animals exist. So unfathomably high, in fact, that we can only estimate how big that number actually is. The number of wild vertebrates alone is thought to be somewhere between 10 to the power of 11 and 10 to the power of 14. That's 10 with at least 11 zeros after it. We're talking trillions of animals, each one of whom will, under the unerring supervision of an all-powerful, all-loving God, likely experience more 
more fear, devastation, and suffering in their lifetimes than we human beings are even capable of imagining. So this is the problem that the Christian has to contend with. How can God permit such insidious levels of unthinkable suffering? Well, it's not like Christians don't have a response to the problem of evil. There are many quite famous attempts to reconcile the existence of evil with a loving God. I wonder if he will use our Calvinist one or if he's just going to use the free will one. Mm -hmm. I think he's just going to respond to William Lane Craig, but we'll yeah. see what he does. The problem is that a great many of these attempts, which are known as theodicies, by the way, simply don't apply to non-humans. For instance, one popular theodicy states that evil and suffering exists as a result of human free will. Right? If humans are genuinely free, they'll sometimes commit and permit evil. Once again, I've heard that. Right. It's very common. <laughs> Um, we're going to say something, Theodore? Oh, he was just responding to the free will one. Yeah, and we didn't even use that as one of our justifications. So just for the record, I don't use that one. I think I did back in the day. I'm sure, and I know I did back in the day before I found out about Calvinism and all that. But um, I don't. I, I think it's a pretty flawed argument. Uh, even I, as a Christian, can take it apart. So I'm sure the atheist can take it apart as well. But this doesn't explain why a tree falls onto a deer's leg, causing it to starve to death in confused agony. It's also sometimes asserted that human suffering is justified because it will be compensated for in the afterlife. But unless you believe in some doggy heaven, or that Jesus died for the sake of your pet hamster's sins too, this also doesn't really fly for animals. It's also sometimes said that suffering exists because from it, more good can emerge. But what good emerges from animal suffering? Well, there's, so, so he does address a portion of our argument, right? That good emerges from bad, but he's assuming that there is no good about a hamster being crushed by a tree or whatever he's saying, right? We don't know that. We ultimately do not know that. And I think it is good that mankind, as God says, very good that mankind was created and mankind was created to be head of the animals. And so if he truly was mankind, uh, we truly were created to be the subduer of nature, then it, it necessarily follows that if we are truly the subduer of nature, that without us, nature is unsubdued and chaotic. And that includes forest fires, that includes animals eating each other, that includes hurricanes and other natural weather events and whatever else. They all stem from um, mankind's rebellion against the creator. And so it is good because it's justice against um, creation, which is headed by man. So it's really justice against man, and man is a head for creation. So creation hurts because its subduer, its, its manager has sinned, just like a family suffers when its father sins. So if the father gets into debt, the whole family suffers. And it's not the kid's fault, it's not the mom's fault, it's the dad's fault, whoever went to sin. But the whole family suffers because the head is suffering. So in the same way, all of creation suffers because men suffer. And that's a good thing because it's justice against mankind. Even if mankind isn't seeing that particular hamster being crushed by that particular tree, right? It is a good thing that justice is being put out. Now, it's also a terrible thing, i.e. we don't want it, we don't like it, and their escape for evil is surrender to God. But the atheist that says that he will not submit to God because God is doing things that he doesn't think are good, well, yeah, I kind of thought you were a God-hater, right? That's what non-Christians are. They hate God, and so you're just proving that you hate God in his way. But the call of the gospel, the kingdom of God's decree, is you're surrounded by the Lord. He has besieged your city, so cosmic skeptic city, whoever's denying God's city, and you can rail against God all you want, but the terms of surrender are this, surrender and live forever, right? Submit to God, obey him, come to him, and stop fighting, or at some point he's going to besiege the city and kill everyone inside, no mercy, right? And show his justice, because those who rebelled against God are evil and wicked. So we were once in the city, all mankind was once in the city that was rebelling against God, hating him but we've come out of the city. We've surrendered to Christ only through the power of God. But the call is to surrender to God. There's no excuse. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. 
and you know i just like to comment on his his claim that we don't even know what good what good could come out of it while well, you're that's a bold claim right there i would like everyone to notice that you're assuming right off the bat that's a very gigantic claim you're assuming nothing mm-hmm. possibly good can come of that and the, and then you might be asking us then how can us three claim to know that anything good can come out of that well how do we know anything about god through the scripture through the scripture he, the scripture i mean i understand pretty basic it's what god has chosen to tell us about him and how he works how he thinks it's what he has chosen to reveal to us revelation in his revelation about him we do have examples in which something that to our mortal eyes seems like terrible absolutely terrible god is actually behind the scenes working for something that is immensely good that the people at the very beginning when this happened could have had no idea mm-hmm. it, that it was good. And I'll cite it now. Yeah. So it's from Genesis 45. I love this one. So this is Joseph. His brothers, they sold him to slavery because they were so jealous of him. And then for years, Joseph agonized in jail. That was unjust. He didn't deserve to be thrown in, j- in jail. He suffered pain. He was un- unlawfully accused by, by the Egyptian noblewoman. Mm-hmm. All of that. Many years later, he's reunited with his brothers and he reveals, they don't recognize him because they think he's dead or whatever. He reveals himself to them and said, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. For the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of the entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. What do you gather here? What the, the brothers wanted to get rid of his of Joseph, they 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 were they were craving that. So now, they did that. But behind the scenes, God is actually fully aware of what's going on. He planned this to happen, and He uses the evil of the brothers. He redeems them eventually, I would say, in order to rescue Israel for something that would happen years in the future. And that's how powerful and amazing God is. And then equally, nobody in that scenario would have guessed that the enslavement of their brother, an objectively evil act when they beat Joseph and threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery, that is objectively evil, no denying that, was actually purposefully driven to save not only that family, but also the saving of many lives, because Joseph's the one that, that is able to interpret Pharaoh's dream and save um, Egypt from suffering. So countless thousands, presumably, or maybe millions, I don't know how many people were in Egypt at the time, were saved because of this evil, objectively evil, agreed upon evil act of his brothers against him. And so equally, it was unfathomable that good would come out of that. You couldn't understand how it was going to work. Equally, you can't really understand why a hamster being smooshed by a fallen tree or whatever evil act is happening to suffering animals um, is going to be used for good. So we really aren't the judges of what is good and bad. And so to say that we are and therefore we can judge God for doing something that we deem evil is pretty presumptuous. And if I could add some more scripture. um, Second Peter chapter three uh, mentions that like justice or because man fell man sinned and were the head of creation um 
It says, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of un ungodly men. So the consequence or the expectation is destruction. Um, and But do not let this one fact escape you. Your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So that's what we can expect mm -hmm. <laughs> to all be basically destroyed um consumed by fire so basically every uh moment that god grants us is truly a blessing to have that and every extra moment to glorify god to repent to um yeah, glorify him praise him for his creation and his goodness that is evident throughout creation mm -hmm. so once again we're owed nothing Right, everything is going to destruction. So for us to call <laughs> things good or evil is pretty, again, presumptuous. But let him keep going. And how does it benefit the animals? Most animals are non-rational creatures. They can't learn and intellectually grow in the same way that humans can. What greater good could possibly be served by allowing a koala bear to be burned alive in an Australian wildfire? Well, fear not, because in 2011, two very eloquent philosophers, Stephen Law and William Lane Craig, both previous guests on this channel, by the way, debated God's existence. Dr. Law brings up the problem of animal suffering, and so we can now turn our attention to what Dr. Craig, often cited as Christianity's greatest public defender, has to say about it. Now, let me say one more thing about animal predation and suffering, since this featured largely in his uh, argument. Number one, Animals are part of a broader ecosystem in which the human drama is played out. And such an ecosystem must be balanced if it's to be viable. It is no accident that every ecosystem involves predators of some sort. For example, I also recently saw a program on television about how the Canadian authorities are reintroducing wolves into the wild in Canada. Why? Because in the absence of these predators, the caribou herds were overpopulating because there was none, no one to pick off the diseased and the aged. And as a result, they were overgrazing and therefore dying of starvation. The predators actually enhanced the survivability and the health of the caribou herds on which they preyed. Okay, so Craig's argument is this. If an ecosystem is unbalanced, leading to an overpopulation of prey, this prey will die from starvation since there won't be enough food to go around. By ensuring that predators exist to pick off the diseased and the aged, the ecosystem is balanced, preventing that starvation. But there are just a multitude of problems with this. Right? First, it's of course true that in practice, any functional ecosystem we know of requires predators and prey in order to be balanced. But why does this need to be true in principle? The laws of ecosystems, as they stand, require predation, but are we expected to believe that God couldn't have made these laws differently? Is God constrained by these laws? That's the implication of saying that an ecosystem must be balanced in this way, that God couldn't have created a balanced ecosystem using other, less painful methods. You know, let me say this. I really respect that he's come up with this argument, because this is what I would say to William Lane Craig. You know, I mean, you know, I'm not his enemy, all right? I'm not William Craig's, Craig's enemy, so I'm, I don't need to come up with something like that, but I agree. That's an obvious hole in his logic. That is that... God can do whatever he wants. So the fact that, yes, ecosystems currently balance that way does not mean that God could have made them not balance that way. And honestly, I, f I find that kind of reasoning the same flaw with the rest of the human free will caused all suffering thing. And that is that it's ultimately like God could have could have done things differently, right? If the if we discern, like William Lane Craig discerns, that God's ultimate goal for mankind was to have free will mankind, which again is not found in scripture. It's just it's just a conjecture of his that he needed to be free will, that mankind needs to be freely picking God to love him. That 
all the rest of evil spawns from mankind's freeness and this is like all the best god can do to cobble together um, the best possible scenario with man being free and able to choose him or able to reject him um, there's plenty of holes you could again like cosmic accepted is poking a hole in that right that god could have prevented all suffering except the suffering of mankind he could certainly absolutely could have created a scenario that is not um so so bad and then equally for Mullenism, which is another thing that that William Lane Craig stands for he says that God is saving as many people as possible well surely he could save all of us there could be some scenario where all of us are saved so once again William Lane Craig's defense has holes in it and I agree it does have holes in it we would say that God is saving exactly who he wants to and that all animals that suffer are exactly who God wants to suffer there's nothing outside of God's will here so if you have a problem with that you have a problem with God and once again the call is to surrender to that God or perish from that God. So we call everyone to surrender, to come to Jesus Christ, to live instead of die, to accept Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, to be saved, to surrender to God and have our own sins, your own sins, whoever's listening, paid for by Christ that you can live forever with him instead of fighting against him until you die. But if you don't like the way God has run his world, then fight against him and die. But that's the call. You either surrender or you die. Yes, and notice what you what um, an individual does. If you say that I don't like the way God is running the place, you're pretty much elevating intellectually. You're elevating yourself to the position of a God, saying this is how things should be mm -hmm. according to what I want. But it's not our our world. It's His, and it, and some Christians. God bless them, and maybe I agree with them a little bit, say that because we all are made in the image of God, we all kind of know what bad things are and kind of know what good things are, right? The natural law argument that naturally we know what's evil and we know what's good because we're all naturally actually God-fearers, God-believers, like Romans 1 would say, that we all know the truth and are either suppressing it or we've given over to it and we've become Christians. So I agree that often, like Cosmic Scripture, often points out correct suffering, right? It's, it's suffering that people get raped. It's suffering that an animal starves to death. It's suffering that they get crushed by a tree. Whatever the suffering is, it is bad, and suffering is bad on the small scale. But once again, we don't know the large scale. So we can say that thing is bad. That's a tragedy that the hamster got crushed by a tree. It's, it's a true tragedy that the Holocaust happened, the 9 11 happened, whatever. But those big scale scenarios where the stakes are even higher, you can see that the good that came out of 9-11 that came out of the holocaust are bigger than the suffering and we even with our human eyes can see that so on the smaller scale where like a single individual gets hurt or a single thing is suffering imagine the the good that comes out of it is possibly and probably only marginally better than the small suffering that came to get it just like the big suffering that caught, like in 9-11 or holocaust or whatever name your big suffering caused big good consequences afterwards and it doesn't even necessarily have to be good on this earth it could just be in the next earth in the next life um, but god often brings good on this earth for suffering on this earth so once again we're not the ones to judge whether something is ultimately good or bad only whether it's specifically good or bad right specifically bad to do the holocaust and those who do it who did it and who want to do it today would be punished for it in this life or the next all right and so equally when judas betrayed jesus it was an evil thing and christ says it's going to happen like like i'm going to give myself over the son of man is going to do as the scriptures say he's going to get betrayed and die but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed it'd be better for him had he never been born and that isn't, that's a call for him not to do it, but for Judas not to betray. But Judas was going to betray, and he will be punished for it. So again, if that bothers you, that there's predestination like that, again, you fight against the living God. And that's the way he's run things. It's the way scripture talks about him running things. So once again, you're fighting against the living God.
I don't. I'm not ashamed of the way he runs things. And Second Peter chapter two talks about that as basically atheists or people against God. Um, talks about them as reviling where they have no knowledge or blaspheming about matters which are ignorant or insulting him who they do not understand, uh, basically talking about God and God's ways. And um, you can tie that into God's response to Job um, when Job gets a bit frustrated. God (laughs) asks him, like, where were you when I created the earth? Um, Where were you when I placed the stars in the sky or Mm -hmm. whatever it says there? Basically who are you to speak back to me when you have no knowledge when all the knowledge that you have is knowledge that i've granted you yeah and i agree notice something very important there and also thank you for bringing it up theodore god never tells job why the whole thing happened yeah he just says deal with it i'm god (laughs) you you assume that he does only because you think job bro job um, or somebody close to him, and you get the heaven scene, right, where Satan comes and tempts. So I figure it was explained to Job, but not within the book. So mm-hmm. um, it's possible that it was never explained to Job. Um, in any case, we aren't due explanation on this earth. In fact, we might not even get it in the next earth, but God is the ultimate judge, and we trust that God is good. So I'll let, I'll let him get going. In other words, the laws of ecosystems somehow constrain what God is able to do. Are we really to think that the laws of ecosystems are more fundamental than God is? No, God is the creator of the laws of ecosystems and so can't be bound by them. And besides, granting that God does need to balance an ecosystem, predation is not the only way to do it. God could have, for example, limited the number of times an animal can reproduce as a way of preventing overpopulation, a form of cosmic contraception. There's definitely a joke about condom brand in there somewhere. But no, for Dr. Craig, God limiting an animal's sexual potency or any other kinds of painless methods are not possible options for combating overpopulation. No, the only way that God can save these animals from overpopulating and starving to death is to introduce savage predators who maul them to death in some of the most painful ways humanly imaginable. That's the only way to balance the ecosystem. I mean, come on. When a lion kills a zebra, the zebra is usually too large to be killed instantly and so is often asphyxiated to death, writhing in pain over a slow, minutes-long death. I mean, even if predation really is the only way to stabilize an ecosystem, there's still absolutely no reason why it would need to be so painful and so gruesome. God could provide for these animals an instant death, or at least one that's less painful. But he doesn't. He allows that zebra to suffer for minutes whilst its windpipe is caught in the jaws of a lion. Just imagine for a moment what it must feel like to be that zebra. This is the None of this man, is necessary huh? for ecosystem stability if you truly are the omnipotent creator of natural laws. And Dr. Craig right is arguing that predation is justified since it prevents prey from starving to death. But is the fate of being preyed upon and eaten alive really that much better than starvation? Would you, given the choice, rather die from a lack of food or from being painfully mauled to death by a large wild animal? I'm not sure I have a particular favorite. It's hardly a merciful deal that's being offered here. God is so loving that he saves these animals from starving by ensuring that they're ripped open and eaten alive before they have the chance to starve. Wow, what a glorious and loving thing that God does for these animals. And why should these animals even be suffering from so much starvation in the first place? That still needs to be explained. And also, bear in mind that predation doesn't even get rid of starvation, just some starvation. Even with predators, there are still animals starving to death in the wild. And so if the reason that God created predators was to save prey from starving to death, why are some animals still allowed to go on starving to death anyway? None of this makes any sense. And on top of even that, note that the same justification that Dr. Craig is using here could also apply to human beings. There are currently millions of human beings lacking food and at risk of famine in South Sudan. 
And starvation is one of the most painful things that a person can go through. But don't worry, I have an idea. Let's go to South Sudan and introduce some wild predators, maybe some wolves or some large bears, to painfully maul these people to death. After all, if we didn't do this, they'd all starve. By allowing them to be preyed upon by wild animals to pick off the diseased and the aged, we reduce their numbers and balance out the ecosystem, leaving more food to go around and minimizing starvation. How, how merciful of us. Well, once again, I mean, that one, I'm sure William, William Lane Craig would be able to knock out of the park because people are fundamentally different than animals. So the atheist might not think so, of course, although I think even fundamentally the atheist agrees that humans are different. But um, William Lane Craig, I'm sure, would say that we don't have the same rights over animals that we do over people. So we have rights to kill animals and introduce predators and balance the population to see as we see fit. Because, again, we were born, we were made, we were created to subdue and manage creation. But fellow men are not the same as fellow creation. We're made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and therefore we should not and cannot arguably um, or justifiably introduce human predators to some place, like assassination squads or bears or wolves or whatever else you might have to thin out the Bangladeshi population because um, that's not our right. Whereas we do have the right over the rest of creation to subdue them and to limit their populations however we want. The fact that you see so much suffering in nature, it should point to you something is wrong. In one of his letters, I mean, I should probably, I should remember by heart, but Paul talks about that all of creation groans mm -hmm. for Christ to redeem it. So I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. So what we see there, yes, it's a good observation. There's a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. It's not good because something went wrong. Then what the heck went wrong? Humans rebelled from their rightful place as God created us mm -hmm. in the garden. And again, ultimately, let's uh, let's remember this too, in case the atheist comes at that scenario and say, then why did God allow that, right? Is this out of God's hand too? No, I would say even then, the suffering, the fall of man was predestined mm -hmm. by God for a greater purpose. So yes, God desired a story where men fell and that were redeemed. Some were redeemed and some were put to justice and that eventually the whole earth was redone, made new and made perfect. That was the desired plan of God. Who are we as this creation? How how can we and who are we to resist him in that? So it's again, the call is either surrender to God, the Almighty, and the All-Merciful, or die, right? Because he's also all just, he's perfect in justice. So the arguments you raise against him, like, oh, I don't like that, because that's that's really all this Christianity problem is, the cosmic perspective is describing. It's not a logical problem. Like God, of course, can do this, right? It's a, I don't like God problem. I don't like that he has that he's allowing animal suffering right now. Because it's not a logical problem. If you're hearing our argument here, we agree. Like the all good God is having animals suffer and it's good. That the individual thing is bad, but it's good. And the same thing goes for human evil, right? When a human is raped and dies, a little toddler is raped and dies, whatever some terrible scenario, that is an objectively terrible thing. But because it is happening, we argue that God predestined all things, including that for either his glory or the glory of one of his that he's saved. For his people. We don't know how it happens, always. Often we do. Often we do see the bad that's in our lives that works out for good. It's a promise that all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. But for those who do not love God, they do not have that promise. So things might work for their good and some things might not, equally for animals. Some things might work for their good, some things might not. But everything works out to the good of God for his glory, for his pleasure, whatever it is. If you don't like, and even if God did take just pure pleasure in the suffering of animals, but he's God, guess what? He defines what's good. We submit to God. So I understand you hate God and you do not like that, but that's, that's not a logical problem. You just don't like our God.
and I already knew you didn't like our God. So it's not much of a revelation here. I think the problem becomes when Christians try to step in front of God and try to defend God against slander by creating a different God. He's attacking a different Christian God who won't hurt animals. Yes, that's really the impression I was going to say in the criticism I have of Mr. Craig, that he's adding things onto what God has revealed to us. He's going way beyond by speculating that God could have created all these alternative universes in Molinism. And you're, as you can see, it's creating more problems than solutions because then anyone, us and atheists, can poke holes uh-huh. at that. Now, something I want to establish. Yes, Michael, you're absolutely correct. God can do as he pleases and he works everything for his good and the good of his people for his eternal glory it's not and we can trust in that not blindly because he has given us examples that's what uh, that's why i wanted to go into some detail with the story of joseph and that's something you know for anybody read the story of joseph in genesis go for it from the moment that he is thrown into captivity to when he in tears meets his brothers again read the whole thing or see everything so you can see all the details so what as much the whole story and see an example that we have revealed by God of how we can trust in him mm-hmm. so we're not just saying this blindly just because we're Christians and whatnot we have examples that God has given to us of how this has actually worked out for good yeah I mean so we also believe that God writes every story, right? Including our stories. Yeah, so, well, but almost every story in human existence, of course, the ones that are in the Bible that are of human existence, have suffering that works out for good. Moses endures temporary suffering in many scenarios. First of all, as a baby being separated from his mother and father, right? Raised in the house of Egypt. Of course, his mother is his wet nurse. But, but putting aside that, um, he suffers there. It ends up being for his good. He survives and he thrives to become the Egyptian Hebrew hybrid leader of the Hebrews as they leave. And the same thing goes for most any character. David, King David, um, Elijah, Elijah. These people suffer, but it's for the good of them and those around them. So equally for us, we can all point to our own testimonies and say that was suffering, right? School was suffering, but it's for our good. So if it's if it's true on that small scale, of course it's true on the large scale. And if it's true on the large scale, of course it's true on the small scale that bad things can be for good. And they are for good. I would say definitionally they are for good. Even if it's not for the animal in question, even if it's not for the person in question, it's good to God. And that's what matters. And we know this because he declares the end from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I'll keep going. So who's for it? Yeah, I didn't think so. Now, okay, you may think that I'm being a bit unfair here, right? There are obviously many other methods we can use to reduce starvation in South Sudan that don't involve killing people with wild predators. But yeah, that's kind of the point, right? If we humans have the power to reduce human starvation without necessitating them being mauled to death by wolves, then you can bet that God has the power to reduce elk starvation without necessitating them being mauled to death by wolves. The idea that permitting this kind of unthinkably painful death is the only way to prevent them from starving if you are the omnipotent creator of the universe verges on one of the most ridiculous things that I've ever heard. So the predators are an essential part of an ecosystem. In a world without predators, the insects would soon take over since there would be nothing to eat them, and all the animals would soon die because all the vegetation would be consumed by insects. Once again, Dr. Craig assumes that the only way to control population sizes is by killing individuals within that population. No mention of any other methods that God might have available to him. But also, was it not within God's capabilities to make it so that insects and wild animals just eat different things? 
We need predators, says Dr. Craig, because otherwise nobody eats the insects, and the insects will eat all of the predators' food, and the predators will die. Yeah, as if it literally wasn't possible for God to provide different food for wild animals and insects. The only reason this problem even exists in the first place is because of the way the ecosystem has been designed. You can't just say, God needs predators because he designed a world that needs predators. That doesn't explain anything. And to reiterate, even if the animals really do need to be preyed upon for whatever reason, the process could have been made a lot less painful. But it wasn't. Now, pause. Think about this. What would we expect to find if we assume that there is no God, and animals in nature are just randomly mutating and evolving and competing for resources with no divine guidance? Well, we'd expect pretty much exactly what we observe in the real world. Would we? Oh, you blew my mind earlier today, Michael. So I'll let you take point on that if you want. Well, so if we didn't have God around, right? First of all, I don't think creation could have happened at all. That's why it's creation. But assuming we didn't have creation, I think that we do not um, we do not see major differences from what's designed today only because all we know is what's designed today. So evolutionists like see nature, they create a theory around it and then point back to the very nature they just observed and say, look, proof of natural selection. So they looked at the way God's design is working right now. They concoct a theory of natural selection and then they say, look, the proof of it working is that it's around. That's what Cosmic Skeptic is saying, that we looked at nature, observed what is happening and then our observations match what's happening. No duh, <laughs> you made the theory based on what you saw happening. So it's not a particular prediction of natural selection to say that natural selection is happening because you observed it happening and then made the theory around it. It's not a, it's not a defining evidence. As if this is something that atheists do all the time and Christians do all the time, it's just a logical fallacy, but I think it's particularly pernicious in the whole evolutionary community um, to say something like this. Metal forks are created by aliens uh, like I observe metal forks are in my drawer in the kitchen. And so I say metal forks are created by aliens. Obviously the big step there is that they're created by aliens and that aliens exist, right? Mm -hmm. And then I say the proof of this is that there are metal forks in my drawer. It's not a prediction of my theory that there's metal forks in the drawer because I saw them and made my theories about them being there because, because I saw them, right? You cannot use the evidence you use to make the theory, prove your theory. So equally for this preposterous version, saying that we would expect evolution to have um, competitive species competing for each other and competing for resources um, because that's what evolution states um, is the mechanism behind evolution is preposterous because evolution was created after observing species compete for resources so of course the evidence matches the theory right you have to find some other thing that matches it and evolutionists are trying to do that all the time right but this particular proof of evolution or support for evolution is not proof at all it's as Ridiculous is me saying that metal forks in my drawer prove that aliens are real. A messy bloodbath and a struggle for survival. Now, what would we expect to see if we assumed the existence of an all-loving and all-powerful god? Maybe some level of suffering that we might not be able to fully explain, but nothing even remotely approaching the level of horror and pain that actually exists in the natural world. <laughs> That's my reaction is that, huh? Who are you to say? Who are you to say that? What, what do we? What do? What should we expect if there is no god? I say we should expect exactly what we see today. He, he even says maybe some level of suffering. Why? Right? For the exact reasons that they're suffering today, the exact amount of suffering that there is today. So there's an all-powerful God. We don't, we don't know all the different specific reasons for why animals suffer, but we don't know the big reason, and that is that it pleases God. And if, again, if that upsets you, ultimately everything happens because it pleases God. So whether the actual specific thing is against God's law Ultimately, it's in context to so say murder in context pleases God, not because the murder is good and God commands us not to murder each other, but because 
that somehow works out to his good. And we see it work out again. Enslaving people, selling people into slavery is a death-worthy offense in God's law. So it is a death-worthy offense. But God uses it and has it happen, ordains it. So before it even took place, ordained it to happen for Joseph for good. In the same way, Jesus being betrayed into death and murdered unjustly is used for the salvation of mankind, right? So it's evil to sell people into slavery. It's evil to have people murdered for unjust charges. And yet God uses them twice for absolutely good reasons, absolutely purposely. It wasn't after the fact. So equally, when a hamster gets crushed by a tree in the forest, I trust that it's also for the good, even if we don't understand it today. It's not a logical problem. That's, again, I keep saying that over and over again. It's not a logical problem for God. It's just that you don't like that God. That's all. It is incalculably easier to account for this suffering on an atheistic worldview. Now, let me... All right, ad break. They always have ads. I wish we were monetized, huh? Probably because of our handsome faces. ...thing, however, that uh, is a result of recent scientific discoveries that shed remarkable light on the problem of animal suffering. In his book, Nature Red in Tooth and Claw, published by Oxford University Press, Michael Murray explains that there is really a threefold hierarchy of pain awareness. On the most fundamental level, there is simply the reaction to stimuli, such as an amoeba exhibits when you poke it with a needle. It doesn't really feel... Dying on the inside. Okay, William and Greg. It's proven why I don't really appreciate his presentations. This is such. Uh, it's like a secular humanist. That's a Christian. Really gross. This is not how you defend Christianity. Pain. There's a second level of pain awareness, which sentient animals have, which is an experience of pain. And animals like horses, uh, dogs, and cats would experience the second level pain awareness. But they do not experience a third level pain awareness, which is the awareness of second order pain. That is the awareness that one is itself, uh, himself in pain. For that sort of uh, pain awareness requires self-awareness. And this is centered in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. Ah, shoot me now. Oh my gosh, it's so secular. It's like, it's like, oh my gosh. He takes a philosophy class or a psychology class and learns that little factoid. And then he decides that, he, that animals aren't self-aware. Well, of course animals are self-aware. I, mean, I guess not every animal, but we know the bonobos like realize that it's them in the mirror um, by age like three, and they do the same for human toddlers. Like human toddlers aren't self-aware until like age three. They don't like realize that it's them in the mirror. Right? They, they are able to extend themselves past their their physical limbs. Um, but <laughs> that's not how you defend right and wrong, right? I don't think you defend right and wrong by like, oh, he doesn't really know it's suffering, whatever. So I totally disregard his points on this. Not to defend cosmic skeptic, but I defend cosmic skeptics abuse of, uh, of William Lane Craig here. That's not, not even abuse. His poking holes in this garbage theory. Let's move on to greener pastures. A section of the brain that is missing in all animals except for the higher primates and human beings. And therefore, even though oh, animals are in pain, they aren't aware of it. They don't have this third order pain awareness. They are not aware of pain and therefore they do not suffer as human beings do. It's just, it's, I, I, okay, so he admits higher primates also have the same third order pain. So I guess chimpanzees and stuff are suffering because of men and have true pain. Like the problem still exists even in his convoluted theory. It's difficult to express just how disturbing it is to see people still peddling this Cartesian fantasy that animals don't experience pain. What exactly is it to be in pain? Pain is an experience. It's not a thing you can touch or measure. It's something that exists in the minds of conscious creatures. Agreed. You cannot be in pain without being aware that you're in pain. If you're not aware of any pain, that just means you're not in pain. Pain is an experienced phenomenon by definition. If you're not experiencing it, it's not there. If pain doesn't necessitate the experience of pain in this way, then what is pain? Does it just mean damage or something's natural function being inhibited? This would mean that a table is in pain if I take an axe to it. No, to suffer is to experience suffering. Saying that you can feel pain without being aware of it is like saying that you can feel sad while thinking that you're really happy. No, if you feel happy, that's what it means to be happy. You can't be happy if you're not feeling happy. 
100% agree. And I hate the philosophy eggheadedness that comes from William Lane Craig that says that you can feel pain without feeling pain. You can't be in pain if you don't feel that pain. To deny that animals can feel pain is a desperate excuse to justify animal suffering. It doesn't explain animal suffering, it simply denies its existence. But it gets even worse, right? Let's just say, for argument's sake, that Craig is correct. Animals don't suffer. They're not aware of any pain that they're ever in. This has some radical implications, right? If animals don't suffer, then there's no issue doing things to them that appear to cause suffering. So if I have a dog, there's no reason why I shouldn't throw that dog on a fire, cut off its tail and poke its eyeballs out. Yeah, I mean, honestly, exactly. Creating weird philosophical things does weird things. We are called, by the way, in the Christian world to subdue and, and care for creation. So there are times where we are justified in killing a dog for meat or whatever it might be, but undue purposeless suffering that we don't understand why we're doing it. We are never justified in doing something we don't understand that God has not commanded. So that's why we're called to care for creation. That's why it would be a sin to abuse your dog. Um, it's not the same level of sin as abusing your child, your human child, but it is sin nonetheless. And the same thing goes for like burning down a forest, right? Forest isn't alive. Um, in the way that animals are alive. However, we're still called to care for creation, so we shouldn't pollute without purpose, right? So it's okay to pollute if it's for a good, humankind flourishing purpose, for example, burning coal. But if you have a better way and a more efficient way to create electricity, and you're just polluting for the heck of it, right? So there's no benefit to it at all. That's evil. And we do have, this is reminding me, we do have an example in which God allows a human to to see the suffering of it with him. Balaam and the uh -huh. donkey. Yeah. He, for a moment there, I don't know if it was through actual language. I mean, I'm not going to even bother at the, the moment, but the donkey is able to communicate with Balaam and he, Balaam is able to understand the donkey. Mm -hmm. He's like, why are, you do, why are you beating me up? Like, what have I ever done to you? Am I not your donkey? What's wrong with you? And then obviously then he has a, and then Balaam has a conversation with God, with Jesus, I would say, on mm -hmm. the road. So, so yes, the, the animals do experience pain and it's even from and, and he knew he was being beaten for something right so clearly he was in pain again William and Craig not using the scriptures not too surprising but thank you for using them and quoting yes the Christians saying that animals are self-aware with a fork I mean why not the dog isn't suffering so what's the problem the dog isn't aware of any pain if you want to accept Craig's position here you have to say that it's perfectly okay for us to treat animals in literally any way we please since they literally cannot be harmed Craig says he is an animal lover. Now this is a tremendous comfort to those of us who are animal lovers, like myself, or to pet owners. Even though your dog or your cat may be in pain, it really isn't aware of being in pain, and therefore it doesn't suffer as you would when you are in pain. So I can't help but wonder, does Craig think that it's okay for me to torture dogs and cats? I'd imagine he'd say no, but if animals genuinely can't suffer, then there seems to be no reason why I shouldn't be able to do this. If animals can't suffer, then there's as much harm involved in me torturing them as there is in me chopping down a tree. So do you think that it's okay for me to throw a dog onto a fire? I didn't think so. And if you don't, it must be because you can see right through this sinister nonsense about animals being incapable of suffering. It's time to relegate that ridiculous and untenable position to the history books, a stain on the course of moral progress. And if Christianity really can't come up with a better response to the problem of animal suffering, then I'm afraid to say that it should be relegated to the history books as well. I've been Alex O'Connor, or Cosmic Skeptic. Make sure to follow me on social media. For I once again just want to conclude by saying his conclusion is that I don't like it, so it should be relegated to the history books as opposed to it has a logical problem. So he starts off by saying it's a logical problem because Christianity claims that it has an all-good God, and here, look, here's non-good things. But once again, the non-good things that he's talking about are not objective, they're all subjective, and we agree that they're non-good things, right? It's bad that animals suffer. But ultimately, it's good. Like he even claimed he knew this argument, right? That they work for good. He just doesn't see how that happens. So it's like a big question mark. Like, oh, I don't see how God is using that for good.
okay and i don't know why he made things in the deep blue sea except that he liked them that we'll never see you know animals that we'll never see that are extinct and no humankind will ever see anymore but it doesn't mean it was purposeless just because you don't know its purpose or even if it doesn't serve mankind right if it's just for god's pleasure who are we to say so it's not a logical problem with the christian god it's just a moral problem you don't like god's morals you don't like the way god is and once again and i'll say it for like the third time this episode it's not surprising that an atheist or an agnostic or skeptic or whatever cosmic skeptic calls himself hates god that's what we all do it's the natural state of men especially for an atheist who's an open hater of god it's not surprising that he would hate god and hate the way he works but again the call is that regardless of whether you hate god right now you will perish in your sins if you do not surrender to God, the Christian God, the triune God. And he's paid for your sins against him. You do not need to perish. You can surrender. And the terms are, he gets everything you have and you gain everything he has. And he owns way more than you. So give up all you have, surrender to the Lord, and you will receive eternal life, joy with him forever, and a spot in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? And a new heart, new mind, renewing of the whole body, that is what is in store if you surrender to God. Now, it costs you everything, but you gain everything. But if you want to hold up in the city and keep all that you have, keep your morals, keep your own understanding, keep your own YouTube channel, whatever it is, and then perish at the end and be invaded by the Lord's armies and, and be destroyed and judged for your sin and burn in hell, that's that's the divide you have. And that's the Christian call. So I call you cosmic skeptic. I'll call anybody who's watching to surrender to the living God and live instead of rebelling against him and dying. Because as much as we might like our own morals, it's really not worth holding to them because we are totally fallible our own morals aren't even we can't even convince other human beings in toto of our own morals let alone the creator of the universe when judgment time comes so again if there should be a view that's relegated to the garbage bin of history it should be atheism it really doesn't make any sense other religions are just wrong right but atheism like doesn't even make any sense why are you still living if you're an atheist in any case that's a question for a different episode any closing comments theodore or sebastian i thought of a couple verses that might be a good summation um because it ties in like the ultimate evil the ultimate injustice isaiah 53 10 but the lord was pleased to crush him uh, him being jesus putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering he will see his offspring he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the lord will prosper in his hand um and then we get to colossians 1 19 to 20 for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him being jesus and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of the cross um yeah indeed and even let me pull up another one again they're scattered throughout scripture and throughout life so it's really not surprising that you see good things being or bad things being used for good john 9 another section famous it's jesus going along and he it says this as he went along he saw a blind man from birth his disciples asked him rabbi who sinned that this man or his parents that he should be born blind jesus replied neither this man nor his parents sinned but this happens that the work of god may be displayed in his life now cosmic skeptic would i'm sure reply um it, uh, that's a terrible reason to make a man sin, uh, blind and that he would be blind not because of the fault of himself or his parents but just that he would suffer all his life until he's 32 whatever age he was here and he blind and all the times he would trip over and not be able to eat and starve and be mocked and made fun of and now he's begging on the streets and that it was all just that the work of God may be shown in him what a pitiful selfish God that would do that I'm sure 
somewhere along the lines might be cosmic skeptics response or somebody along his same viewpoint but we see it in scripture and i trust god over our own understanding so once again leaning out of my own understanding but trusting that that is a valid reason for a blind man to be born blind so that god's work is shown in him because god is infinitely greater than mankind so as much as we are called to respect mankind god can do whatever he wants to mankind and it is just and good because god is just and good to put into perspective that man suffered for many many years begging blind and whatnot by his healing how many people who witnessed that were the lives were served, mm-hmm. saved eternally and that has infinite value in comparison to living some years blind i understand it's not pleasant i would not want to be well mm-hmm. partially blind but you know i don't want to be fully blind but how much better is it not for people to live for eternity with yahweh himself in his kingdom i would say that outweighs inf- literally infinitely mm-hmm. the the blindness and also what as you know as you've been saying it just reminded me of mark eight what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their own soul so yep so yes, you suffer for a bit on this earth, but that suffering can be used, and we see it through our church history, for people to be turned to Christ and then gain life eternal, which is, again, eternity is a very, very long time. It's eternal. That's infinitely more than some X amount of years suffering and pain, sorrow, whatever it may be. Yep. That's why we have found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. I've been Michael, the man behind the machine. And to my right, your left has been... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And in between us, through the magic of the internet, it has been... Theodore, under the PC, the person of Christ. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can download them all for your listening pleasure at foundcause.pinebead.com. That's audio only, though. If you want to go to our video episodes, you have to go to facebook.com forward slash foundcause, or you can go to YouTube and search as foundcause there. We're also on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you might find your podcasts and listen for your listening pleasure. And so until next time, we talk about something completely different. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.